Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. Hi, this is the voice of BattleBots, Mark Biro. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. Hi, this is Brad Steiger. Hello, my name is Matt Simon. I'm a science writer at Wired Magazine and author of the new book, The Wasp That Brainwashed the Caterpillar. This is Frank Joseph. I'm the author of an essay in the latest book, Lost Secrets of the Gods. Hi, this is Linda Godfrey, author of American Monsters. Hello, my name is Robert Solis. I'm the author of Unidentified, the UFO Phenomenon. Hi, this is Nick Redfern, the author of Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Hi, my name is Bob Luca. And my name is Betty Andreessen Luca. Hi, this is Jesse Krupus, the producer of JFK, The Smoking Gun. Hello, this is Marty Langford. I'm the director of Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. Hi, this is Kevin Randall, author of Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-Up. Hi, this is Tracy Roberts, founder of Positive Autistic. I'm Jeremiah Bomek, the producer of The Real of Horror. Hi, my name is Bill Hall, author of The World's Most Haunted House. Hi, this is Micah Hanks, and I'm the author of the book The Ghost Rockets. And you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift Talk Show, blogtalkradio.com. Yes, it is. And it's titled 
Paul David blowing America's mind in the sky with diamonds. Now listen to me, you cat, because this episode is going to have one heck of an interview. I mean, Paul and I chatted for a while, and we chatted about his book, which his book is called Blowing America's Mind, A True Story of Princeton, CIA, Mind Control, LSD, and Zen. Now, this is a true story. We are only just now learning about all these really weird things that, hey there, and, um, you know, that happened in the 70s and the 60s with the Project MK Ultra, which was a real project the government did. In the book, Paul talks about how him and his friend, wow, it really honestly blew my mind. I mean, I know that's the title of the book, but really it did. There was a lot of things that – thank you very much for the love, guys. I appreciate it. There's a lot of things that we just are now finding out about, okay, that we're just learning about as people, as a society, and this is one of them. And it's like it just really kind of validates a lot of the stuff that we thought was just a conspiracy, and we just you know kind of you know weren't really all that sure about, but now now it's coming to light, and it's like what you know. So when you're listening to the interview, I really want you guys to you know try to imagine yourself as a student. Like, what if you were in this guy's position? Now you might think, well, I wouldn't even you know be a part of it. I went, well, hold on a second. When you're in, you go to classes and if you're in sports, you do that. If you're in part of a club, you go to the club and basically drink and have sex. That's basically it. Oh, and have parties. And you know, if you're not into all that stuff, then hi, Brian, Javier. hi, Brian, how you doing, buddy? If you're not into that stuff, then, you know, you got to find something else to occupy your time. And these guys are intellectuals. They were, you know, him, uh, was Paul and his friend, um, John Shelby, who is another, who was the other author of this book and who also had something else happen to him. Now, when you read this book, it doesn't read like a nonfiction book, so I'm just going to give you a little fair warning about that. But it's a good kind of warning because the book is actually really awesome. It, it really makes you feel like you're there, like you're part of what's happening with these guys. And it's kind of like, I don't know about you, but it made me a little bit upset because I wanted to, you know, I was like, God, I can't believe these people are doing this to these guys. Anyway, it's a really, it's a pretty long interview. Uh, so I'm just going to go ahead and start playing before I, obviously, then you click on it and it, boom, there you go. You let's do it. And you can still have the video feed that I'm going on, that I'm doing right now on Facebook. You can still have that on if you want. And so anyway, here you go. Here's the interview between myself. And after this interview, I'm just going to cut because it's a pretty long interview. Here's the interview between myself and Paul Davids. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. This is Emmy with the Graveyard Shift Talk Show. And as promesido, I am on the air with the illustrious author and awesome guy, Paul Davids. Now, uh, and we're going to be uh, talking about his book, Blowing – well, his and John Selby's book, Blowing America's Mind, A True Story of Princeton, CIA Mind Control, LSD, and Zen. And before we go into that very, very hip book – see what I did there? I'll tell you a little bit about Paul. He is an author, obviously, film director, and producer. He began his career as production coordinator for – Marvel Productions on the original Transformers animated TV shows. And then he co-wrote six Star Wars books for George Lucas. The books became immensely popular, selling millions of copies. 
He's produced and directed about 10 feature films for television, many of them controversial, and most distributed to TV by NBC Universal. Some of the best known of his films are Showtime's Roswell, you, I am sure, many of you know about that one, and also Timothy Leary's Dead, The Sci-Fi Boys, Jesus in India, and the recent Marilyn Monroe Declassified. And he actually co-wrote this book with author John Selby. Paul, how are you doing today, my friend? I'm doing well. It's bright and early here in Los Angeles. Same here. Uh, we're at we're a few hours ahead of you guys, but listen, I hope it's not hot where you are. I understand there's like a major fire going on. Are you guys safe? Is everybody okay over there? Uh, my wife and I are in a safe area of Los Angeles, closer to Pasadena. But uh, it's a uh, it, it's really a tragedy what's unfolding and. We just hope that the winds die down and they get these fires under control really quickly. A lot of people have been hurt. Yeah, that's what I've heard. It's it's really terrible to see what's what's happening. I mean, my goodness, you know, we're not you know necessarily accustomed to that over here in Florida because it's such a humid environment. And a lot of people, I keep telling them, you know, it, it's not like that. And you, know, you guys have a dry, you know, it's dry over there, correct? So that's know, right. Those kinds of things do can and unfortunately do happen. So um, we're obviously be thinking and praying for you guys safety and everyone's safety really so um speaking of safety uh really this book is kind of about something that you know we heard about we've seen in documentaries and tv shows but i i can actually say i've never really met anyone who's actually was actually involved in these uh experiments now can you first of all tell us how exactly did you and um and John uh get to write this book? I mean, why why did you decide to 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 reveal this about yourselves that you guys went under this um treatment or this process uh and 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 why what what got you to actually do it to to do the book itself? Well, we call the book as you said Blowing America's Mind. And the title comes from a newspaper editorial headline from the Los Angeles Times. Mm -hmm. It said, the CIA blowing America's mind. And what they were referring to is, uh, that, and this was revealed back in the late 1970s, and there were Senate hearings about this when it was revealed and came out. But uh, for a couple of decades the CIA had a program called MKUltra. Right, right. M MK stands for mind control. It was a top secret program, and uh, they were researching all different kinds of ways of controlling the human mind, influencing human behavior, testing reactions to lots of experimental drugs, which included LSD. Right. And actually, I have a list. There were about 140. 39 drugs that were tested during this program, and they also used uh, deep hypnosis in some of the experiments. So think about this, Emmy. It's kind of hard to conceive, but they had 149 different projects uh, that they were undertaking at 86 different institutions in America. Now, that included colleges and universities. Wow hospitals, prisons, and 
most of the subjects that they selected in these experiments didn't know that they were being experimented on. Hmm. In other words, it, it was done largely without consent. Hmm. And this included spraying LSD in subways in New York wow. and doing all kinds of nefarious things that affected lots of American civilians who were innocent bystanders. And the CIA, for its part, justified this program by, in their mind, by the fact that uh, Russia was experimenting with mind control. And after the Korean War, they uh, learned about uh, the mind control of uh, North Korea. This is where the uh, the book and the movie The Manchurian Candidate came from, the idea right, of having right, right. controlled assassin. So how did I get in, in, involved? Well, very innocently, and John Selby too, we, we were students at Princeton University in the late 1960s. We were psychology majors. And as psychology majors, we were very interested in what we heard about experiments going on at the nearby New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute. So these were billed as experiments in deep hypnosis, which would help you uh, explore your mind, they mm -hmm. said, and, you know, relax your inhibitions. At all-male school of Princeton, you know, they said, well, this will be good for, you know, helping you in social situations. You'll meet more girls. Uh, mm -hmm. You'll expand your consciousness. We heard that LSD was involved in the program, <coughs> in the experiments, and at that time, LSD was in the news everywhere, and there were some major personalities who were promoting it for consciousness expansion. So this is what sort of lured us in. Now, and Timothy Leary uh, might have been, should have been one of those um, people, correct? That was well, he, uh, yeah, he, he was he was at had been at Harvard. He had been fired from Harvard for psilocybin experiments on undergraduates mm -hmm. a couple years before this all came about for us. But Timothy Leary proselytized LSD and the psychedelic experience publicly, uh, probably more than anybody else. But I think you also have to include the Beatles then, because they took LSD and they were uh, promoting it too. So... People were excited about it. Uh, yeah. They liked Timothy very much in the sky, especially with, with diamonds. With her diamonds. So <laughs> Timothy Leary set up the League for Spiritual Discovery up in Millbrook, New York, uh, where he continued the LSD exper uh, experiments. Now, we at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute were under the wing of a psychiatrist named Dr. Humphrey Osmond. Really interesting person. And I want to say, in Blowing America's Mind, we use all the real names. We're telling the true story of what happened to us. If you don't know about Humphrey Osmond, you'll find out a lot more about him in our book, but you may want to research him on your own. He was originally from England, then was in Canada, in Saskatchewan, and began experiments with psychedelics. He coined the term psychedelic, psychedelic drug. What does it mean? It means mind manifesting. So this was a class of drugs that uh, not considered like a, uh, a stimulant. Uh, it was very far removed from other drugs that people take illicitly, whether opium or heroin. Mm -hmm. These drugs affected the mind, and the claim was they opened the mind, that the mind 
saw new vistas, saw new sides of of life and the world that couldn't be accessed without it. But there were dangers. There was always the risk, uh, particularly if someone had illicit LSD. You, you didn't know whether it was uh, pure. You didn't know how much you were getting. So the idea of being able to have this experience from a psychiatrist in a controlled environment you know, this was you know this was favorable. It was seen much more safe than other ways of going about it at that time when it was popular. So Humphrey Osman came down from Canada. He set up shop at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute. He began a program that used deep hypnosis training. So John Selby and I underwent deep hypnosis training for extensive periods of time. My co-author, John Selby, eventually promoted to hypnotist in the program. And for a while, he was my hypnotist. I'm sorry, you're, you just to clarify, you said that Sel, Selby himself became your hypnotist? I, don't want, I want to make sure I heard you correctly. Uh-oh, I think I lost him. Paul, are you still there? By the CIA at that time, it was... Top secret. Paul, I'm sorry. Paul, I'm sorry, but I lost you there for a minute. Um, okay. I, I, had, I was asking um, – I don't know what happened, but uh, we, the call got cut off for some reason. But I was asking um, whether uh, Selby – did he become your hypnotist? Or I mean, I want to make sure I heard you correctly. Yes, and as strange as it sounds, because he was a psychology senior at that time, um, he had been in the program trained under deep hypnosis for about a year. Mm-hmm. and he was being promoted to staff research uh, hypnotist. And he had been offered to stay on and have a full-time job at the Neuropsychiatric Institute after he graduated and was told that uh, most likely he wouldn't be drafted in the Army during the Vietnam War if he took this position because it would be considered in the national interest, the research in the national interest. Well, you know, that should have been a, a, an alarm to us, uh, uh, concern to ask, well, why would this deep hypnosis research be considered in the national interest? We didn't know or understand, but it was the uh, CIA's agenda that was behind it. And the CIA set up dummy corporations, shell corporations, as paymaster to pay out all these different psychologists, psychiatrists, researchers, that were doing their projects at major universities. I mean, we have in, in the book, Blowing America's Mind, which just came out, by the way. Uh, it's only been available now for less than two weeks. We have the uh, original news clippings uh, incorporated into it that will show you right, yeah. what the CIA was doing, how it was uh, exposed. It was amazing that it was exposed because the head of the CIA back then in the mid-1960s, his name was um, Richard Helms, and he had brought these mind control projects uh, back to a high-priority high position. Um, and at, at, after a couple of years of it, he ordered all of the documents that they had on it to be destroyed. You know, he was trying to cover up everything that they were even ever involved in it. Of course, of course. But the, the, what happened was that uh, Sidney Gottlieb, 
of the CIA who had yeah. been hired to oversee all the projects, somehow he or someone who worked for him preserved 120 boxes of these secret documents and mislabeled them as financial records of some other CIA project. And they were stored away and lost. But 10 years later, they were found at Langley. And to everyone's uh, shock, you might say, um, it got out into the public domain, like the Pentagon Papers and uh, like Watergate. You had MK Ultra exposed, and it was headlines in all yeah, the it, national it, newspapers. Yeah, I mean, it literally did blow everybody's mind. I mean, it was it, it really was major because at that point it was just you know hearsay. It was just theory and really a lot of you know you know conspiracy theory stuff. But then it became real, and it was like wow. I mean, yeah, yeah. Now, and I, did, I don't. I, I just want to say I don't think it ever really sunk into the public mind. Um, enough as to uh, what the implications of all this uh, were. Because think about it. I mean, we always consider we live in a free country. You know, the individual is important. We all have rights. And yet we have these secret intelligence agencies, and we don't think that they might be looking at uh, innocent Americans as research projects for their military experiments. Mm-hmm. It's, it's shocking. Now, they, they claimed when they had Senate hearings, Ted Kennedy was involved, they claimed that it was all done, that it was the CIA's past, that they never wanted to revisit something like this again. But um, there are a lot of people that think that it continued under other names, took other forms, you know, morphed into other kinds of experiments, and that it's never really stopped. And there's what can we do about it? I mean, when something's classified top secret, you can't get access to it, and you can't prove it. Right, right. I mean, now, but now that being said, you know, how did you guys learn that your? Because I mean, they did this across a lot of air, a lot of places. So how yeah. did you find out that your specific one, your specific institute and university was part of the MK Ultra project? Because at the time all of this was exposed, the names of the doctors we worked with came out and the oh, New Jersey wow. Psychiatric Institute as one of the places. And Princeton, Princeton University itself. You see, there was a certain separation between Princeton, where we were students, mm-hmm. and the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute. But the news reports, we have one here from the New York Times, a headline saying that the CIA tells Columbia and Princeton University of the secret behavioral research that took place at their universities. So there were professors being paid. Maybe the administrators of the university, we don't know what they knew or what they didn't know, but um, it, it all came out. It was revealed. Names were named. And, Emmy, it's one of the reasons we waited so long to publish the book. I was just going to ask you, man, why, would, you know, why did you wait? I mean, I mean, quite frankly, I would be a little bit intimidated myself, you know, but you that's just me. Yeah, I bet. Uh, I bet well, you were. It's only natural because both John Selby and I, we had our our successful careers uh, to think about. You know, I I was very active in uh, uh, Hollywood. I have been since the Transformers shows. I've been making movies every year or two. The last one, Marilyn Monroe Declassified, came out last November. Yep. yep. And John Selby ha- has written, we added up, we think it's around 40 books in psychology, philosophy, self-help, 
and adventure stories. Um, so for us at an earlier time to have gone public that uh, that we were exposing the project in detail. I mean, you live this thing with us when you read Blowing America's Mind. Yeah, uh, you so really I, do. For us to do this earlier, um, we think would have entailed more personal risk than it does now. And, and why, why now? Well, on the one hand, we waited until all the the people that were involved, all the real names we use in the book, till everybody was deceased. I mean, they're, they're all dead now. Uh, Humphrey Osmond, uh, Bernard Aronson, who was the chief hypnotist. He, at the yeah, he was the American one, the American psychologist. Yeah, and then um, even the president of Princeton University at that time, Robert F. Goheen. There's a chapter in here that I think will be of interest to everyone, and particularly anyone connected with Princeton, where John Selby was invited in to talk to President Goheen about LSD and student use of psychedelics on the campus. Hmm. And it was becoming so widespread then, 1967, the year of Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, um, so widespread that the university sponsored a booklet about college students and psychedelics at that time. John Selby was involved with that, with the doctors at the infirmary, the people concerned with health at Princeton. Um, that's when students were beginning to use marijuana, and the laws in New Jersey were really, really strict. Uh, there were students that were caught with you know, joints in their dormitory, and they were arrested. Narcotics agents came onto the university, into their dorm rooms, searched their dorms, arrested them, hmm. thrown out of the university, faced 10 years in prison for what? for possession of something that's legal now in almost half the states. And those were different times, Emmy. That you have to well, put right, yourself right. back there. And Although, you know, in, in, in many of the states, you can still be arrested for possession of marijuana, and it's still against federal law. Maybe they don't enforce it like they used to, but it's on the books, and it certainly doesn't breed any respect for, for the law, I think, because it's such a schizophrenic contradiction that it can be legal in so many places and yet against federal law. Right. But, but the book recaptures that whole era. Um, and blowing America's mind, why, why recapture the late 1960s uh, now? Well, I mean, on the one hand, we just had the 50th uh, anniversary of those days and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band and all the nice. things that were happening back then. Yeah. The, the, the days of Ken Kesey and the electric Kool-Aid acid test and the Merry Pranksters and the Lovins in San Francisco, uh, the Beans, all of the, um, the hippie culture that kind of came crashing down with Charles Manson. However, why, why revisit it now? Well, uh, newspaper articles are showing that LSD use uh, is popular again now. There's a resurgence that people are, for example, in Silicon Valley, those who work in technology, computers, um, microdosing themselves with small amounts of LSD intended as a stimulant to creativity. And Steve Jobs... Um, stated right. that yeah. the fact that he turned on with LSD 
had a permanent lasting effect on opening his mind that contributed to his ability to accomplish the technological things he did. And I, I may be mistaken, but I think Steve Wozniak said the same thing. I think yeah, they were he, all involved with that. Yeah, well, Steve Jobs did absolutely uh, you know, use LSD. I don't want to say a lot, but he used it you know, more than a couple times. I, I mean, as far as uh, Steve Wozniak, I think maybe he used it a little bit, but I, I, I think it's safe to say he didn't use it as much as Jobs. And, you know, it's yeah, it's true. I think there is a, a great deal of resurgence of um, interest in all this, because especially now that, you know, you were mentioning about the timeline earlier and how all these people are deceased that were involved in this stuff or were doing these things. A reason now, we waited. A reason exactly, we waited. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, I mean, a, a direct connection is the JFK assassination. You know, just recently, uh, the a lot of the paperwork, a lot of the um, – the files were released because, quite frankly, a lot of the people that probably could be could be you know um, implicated, implicated implicated. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Are gone, you know, from this earth uh, physically, and you know, it, it just makes you wonder what else are we going to find out? You know, what else, what else is going to come crawling out of the woodwork? And you know, well, it, I, I'll, just, tell, I'll tell you one thing, Emmy. UFOs. It's going to come crawling out of the woodwork. It already is. I think so too. I think I, I agree with you. I, I, I absolutely, yeah. I made the film Roswell, as you mentioned, for Showtime, right. Right. and it's not it's not the TV series Roswell. the The film I made is it's sort of a classic of television now. It it had Kyle MacLachlan of Twin Peaks, um, and it had Martin Sheen and Dwight Yoakam, and it recreated the Roswell incident of 1947, the crash of something that was un unidentified, that military people later came forward and said it was extraterrestrial, and they covered it up. They don't want you to know. So I made that film. Well, things have been leaking on that over the years. Uh, I personally am convinced that it's still being withheld, and as is, you know, the you know, are, are the basic facts about uh, UFOs and, and what are reported to be... Um, aliens interacting with people. So it's just another example. When you have a, a national security state, a national security system that has levels of classification with severe penalties for anyone who breaks ranks and releases anything that's classified. You, you can see it's in the news every day. Yeah. The, the, the way they're going after anyone that leaked anything Right, and mm -hmm. there's a lot to leak. You know, <laughs> how else would WikiLeaks come up with you know as many documents as it has? That is very that's very true. A lot that's being kept secret from us, and and what was kept secret from John Selby and myself was the fact that they wanted deep hypnosis subjects. Let, let's talk a little bit about what what it what it is and what they do I was with just, it. I was just going to ask you that. I was just going to ask you that. Go ahead. Parker. Okay. All right. So uh, many people can be hypnotized, you know, at least lightly. But what they call deep hypnosis is so strong that it it, it actually could be used uh, in some people, not everyone, but in some people as an anesthetic during an operation that the mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, in hypnosis, that pain could be blocked, and uh, the mind can be given instructions 
we call them conditions, hypnotic conditions, which change reality in fundamental ways for the person who's been hypnotized. They train you first uh, to get into a trance, and then they'll give you a code word so that they can quickly get you to uh, a certain level, not as deep as you're going to go, but the certain you're in a trance, you hear the code word that you've been trained to go into a trance when you're relaxed and you're in the hypnosis chair, you're calm. And then um, verbal instructions from the hypnotist take you deeper and deeper. And then they can do all sorts of things with your mind, and they can also make you forget it afterwards. They can block oh memory gosh. of the condition. And That's that, terrifying. That's terrifying. That, that was the problem for us, for John Selby and for me. The blocking of the conditions, which in some cases put us into some very freaky states for a few hours at a time. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the things they were looking for, because the doctors at that institute were so interested in psychedelics, and they were interested in madness and schizophrenia, and there had been a theory, because these drugs were at one time called psychotico, psychotomimetic drugs, meaning they mimic psychosis. So they wanted to know, is that what happens when you go under LSD? Or is a person suffering from schizophrenia, is it like they're on a permanent LSD trip, that their senses are changed, maybe heightened, they can't process all the information that's coming in? So they wanted to distinguish what are the symptoms of psychosis, versus the symptoms of expanded what they call uh, expanded consciousness uh, under psychedelic drugs. And that's why they would put us under deep hypnosis, sometimes with a microdose of LSD administered, and oftentimes not. And they might tell us, for example, uh, that um, when, when we open our eyes... And they're going to have us walk around and we'll spend an hour in the condition of having no depth perception. Everything we see will look flat. Wow. All right? Wow. And when you're in deep hypnosis, that's what happens. You lose your depth perception and they want to study your behavior. What, what happens to you? Do you become uh, like, you know, like you're a mouse that wants to crawl off in a corner and get in a fetal position? Does it make you paranoid? And the answer on no depth perception is yes, it brings about a temporary psychosis state. And the same thing when they change the passage of time in certain ways. The same thing if they tell you that you're like six inches tall. I mean, the mind will, will take that on and you will perceive yourself as being tiny and vulnerable in connection with everything around you. Psychosis, that's what you get. On the other hand, a condition like expanded depth perception, you get uh, a euphoric state. You get a, uh, a, a happier mind awakening that resembles more the psychedelic state of what usually happens under LSD. And not just LSD. This would include the magic mushrooms, which is psilocybin. It would include uh, peyote, which is mescaline. And I just want to get off the subject for one second to mention sure. that Humphrey Osmond was the doctor who gave mescaline to the great author Aldous Huxley. Oh, are you uh, kidding me? 
No. Osmond gave mescaline to Aldous Huxley, who wrote The Brave New World. And after Huxley had this experience guided by Osmond, he wrote a book called The Doors of Perception. About I was just going to – yep, yep. The mescaline yep. experience. So wow. this, is, this all comes from the guy who's our overlord at the institute where we're subjects. And that book, The Doors of Perception, by the way, that's where the, uh, the group The Doors took its name from. Right, right, you know? right. And, that, and I, that book is unbelievable. I mean, if I've, I will never – I don't think I've ever read a book like that before. I don't think anybody ever has. And it's just really just, whoa, it yeah, is. It conveys the psychedelic experience brilliantly well. Yeah. Uh, as does the book LSD, My Problem Child by Albert uh, Hoffman. He's, he's the one who actually invented LSD and discovered its properties five years after he invented it by – accidental ingestion of the drug and he didn't know what was happening to himself was he oh going mad he was riding a bicycle home from work when all the uh, you know hallucinatory effects started oh, that's terrible. Hit him. oh my gosh and but he found the effects really fascinating he went home got on a couch he closed his eyes and saw the kaleidoscope of millions of colors and um the ideation that happens under the influence of those drugs, it's, it's like, this is in our book too, particularly the conversation between John Selby and, and the president of Princeton, uh, Robert Goheen, because John Selby is explaining to the president um, some of these facts about psychedelics that uh, uh, President Goheen wasn't aware of. For example, the brain has something called the diencephalon, which is like a reducing valve. Its purpose is to cut down on the amount of the flood of stimulus that's coming to us all around from our environment so we can process it. You know, the mind is processing, the brain, all of this information, what we see, we feel, we smell, we hear. But if you don't have a reducing valve, you are bombarded and the mind can't process it. And also, if the mind runs wild in the speed at which it operates. Say you normally have, let's say, uh, four different thoughts in two minutes. You can think about four different things. The mind goes from here to there to there, normally. Right. You're under a psychedelic drug, and maybe the mind is going to a thousand things in the same two minutes. You know, reveries from your childhood being being, uh, brought back, Uh, things of imagination seeing details of the world around you that you would never notice before, looking at a spider and finally, suddenly you know, understanding the whole world from the point of view of a spider or an ant. And it all happens in a short period of time, such a flood of information. It's why the psychedelic drugs tend to make it seem like time stops, why the eight hours of a psychedelic experience can seem like uh, eight days or longer uh, because it feels like time slows down. The brain is operating at a whole different kind of speed. That's amazing. And, so, and you know, so basically, so then when you were going under, undergoing, rather, these deep hypnosis sessions, as you were discussing in the book, yeah. would, how would they introduce this, the LSD or whatever they were giving you while you were in the – I mean, were you aware that they were giving this to you? I mean, did they tell you, hey, look, no. we're going to give you the no, – no. they. So how did they do that? How would they introduce that 
drug element during the session that that you well it would be before the session because it would take time to take effect so before the sessions we would all usually gather in the kitchen maybe we'd have coffee we'd have uh, oh my god you know we have a glass of water um and occasionally occasionally there would be an lsd session where we would know for example um we have a website blowingamericasmind.com and we have some blogs there. And uh, John Selby uh, has one blog where he talks about when Humphrey Osmond gave him LSD knowingly and guided him on a trip and what that was like. So, you know, we were we, – they called us subjects, right? We were their subjects. We were guinea pigs. And the deeper you got sucked into it, the harder it was to – even think about pulling yourself out. I mean, you know, there are some sort of cultish religions or organizations. People get involved, and then they say they get sucked in deeper and deeper. I mean, I, I'm going to mention David Koresh and the Branch Davidians, for example, oh, the Waco, Texas, right? Where oh, the people that, that are surrounding him, they're completely enmeshed in all of his teachings and his worldview. And they come to a point where they can't conceive of a life apart from that. Right, and Jonestown. I mean, you know, the, the Jonestown yeah. massacre. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I'm not going to name the organizations, but there are some religious organizations where people say, well, that's like a cult. The same thing is happening. Well, <laughs> these experiments at the New Jersey Neuropsychiatric Institute were like that. And when you read Blowing America's Mind, what you'll see unfold is that with his one year of hypnosis that preceded my getting into the program, John Selby was beginning to have some really serious problems from it because of the blocking of the memory and the things that would come back into his mind at unexpected times. For example, uh, imagine a condition where you're told uh, to become a bird and fly away. And they say, you know, you're above the Institute now. Can you look down on the Institute? Can you see the building? Okay, go higher, higher. Can you see Princeton University? Can you see the whole university? And then they give you a condition um, which may block part of your memory permanently or part of your personality. And when they let you come back and then you're no longer a bird, part of you is gone. That's that's the problem that John Selby had, that he he felt there were parts of him that, that he had no more access to, and he would panic. Um, and then he would run to the director in panic, and the director's uh, – well, this was Bernard Aronson, the hypnotist. He would put Selby under again, oh. say, I'm going to erase the condition now. You know, oh. You're having a flashback. Let's erase the condition. But the conditions never ended. So he – while he was my hypnotist, he was panicking. He really wanted to quit and break free. He was so ambivalent. On the other hand, they're telling him, if you work here full-time next year, you won't get drafted and sent to Vietnam. What do you think? Uh, Yeah, I mean, okay, I'll stay. So you see his conflict in blowing America's mind, and you see my naivete, because I didn't know what was going on with him. I want to say this. John Selby and I are really different personalities. I mean, we we come from really different backgrounds. He grew up on a cattle ranch. Um, and so, uh, you know, he was a cowboy and he had 
high academic scores, and he'd been a, an exchange student in South Africa, so he was a really interesting person. He was accepted at Princeton, and he joined the fencing team, I think his freshman year, and he became a championship fencer. He was not only the champion fencer of the Princeton fencing team, uh, he said that he was listed as number four foil fencer in the nation at that time. Oh, wow. Top wow. Now, what happens when you, when you have a, a fencer? Oh, and also, as an antidote to the hypnosis, he was getting into Zen. He was studying Zen. Now, hmm. Zen, Zen Buddhism, the accent of it is on concentration on the now, the present. You know, block out the past, block out worries about the future, get rid of all worries, and just focus on what's happening now. And he found that very useful when he's out on the fencing mat. But his coach um, would scream at him for his spontaneity and what the coach considered sloppiness because uh, John Selby would sometimes just be out there on the mat just waiting for the Zen flash to hit, and then he'd strike his opponent instead of following all the European rules of the sport. So you see this in the book, big conflict between John Selby and the Princeton um, coach. However, when you add hypnosis to the mix, what happens then when he's fencing and he starts to have a hypnosis flashback? I I was just going to say, he probably, that, that must have, oh my gosh. Yeah. So that's one of the repercussions that you see here. The other thing is, which we haven't talked about, which I think is really important in the book. It is a love story. I John, was just going to, yeah. yeah. For, Stop reading my mind. For you John, see what he's doing, guys? You see yeah. what he's doing? See, I'm trained at that. That's, that's my specialty now. So uh, John Selby um, fell uh, deeply in love. And... Uh, the unfolding love story is there uh, while he was a senior. And uh, you'll see Bernard Aronson had a strong, he had a homosexual side to him. And so for him, having all these boys to hypnotize at the Institute, you see, this adds oh, a whole other boy. <laughs> and by the way, well, before we go any further, yep. for you guys that might be confused out there, the listeners or viewers, um, the book is actually written kind of like a novel, so it's not your typical nonfiction book that's written like a journal or anything like that. It's it's kind of, it's actually written in a way that you feel like you're actually reading, you know, well, a fictional novel, except it's not fiction. It really happened. Yes. So it, really, wanted, it, I, it all yeah. really happened, uh, except in the case of some of the students at Princeton that we talk about. Uh, rather than identify them as real people, we would sort of do a composite of a couple of people and use right. just for yeah. just for the students. But everything having to do with the experiments, the CIA, the Neuropsychiatric Institute, Humphrey Osmond, and Bernard Aronson, it's all exactly as we remember it, what happened. And the memory of what happened, it, let me just say, we began writing this book soon after it happened. I mean, it's decades ago we started this. I was a hmm. student at the American Film Institute Center for Advanced Film Studies after Princeton in preparation for my career in film and television. And <clears throat> Selby went on to be um, a book writer of many other books, but we had never finished this one. First of all, when we started it, we didn't know about the CIA 
the extent of the CIA's uh, connection or that it was called MKUltra. We found that out like 10 years later. And so we kept writing and writing and putting it aside. And finally this year, I said to John Selby, look, are, are we going to finish this book while we're both still above ground? You know, hmm. are we, are we, let, it, it, put it at the top of our bucket list. Let's get it done. Let's put it out there. Because, you know, we're of an age now where uh, you know, neither of us is afraid of the repercussions of uh, people screaming or, you know, up in arms of anything that we might be saying about uh, about well, this. Well, I mean, right, and it's not like the information isn't out there. People already know about this, so it's not like they can say, hey, how, how yeah. could you do this? I'm like, well, yeah. but, hello, but, you can just look it up on the Internet. I mean, <laughs> but, but this is specific to Princeton. Right, right, right. Which is, yeah. many consider the finest university in the country, and, and it well may be. This is Princeton when it was an all-male very elitist school before yeah. co-ed. And you get the flavor of that too, I think, which is one of the things that gives the book its charm, that it's an all-male school. It's all these guys, these horny guys who, uh, you know, they can't get a date because there's no girls around. <laughs> right. And, 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 then, and, then, and then with the, the – the, 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 we, we didn't have the word gay then, but the homosexual angle I was uh, talking about with uh, right. the, the, this man at the Institute – he didn't like the fact that John Selby had fallen in love with uh, a girl that he didn't want him involved with. First of all, if he was going to keep John Selby on as a research hypnotist for the next year, he wanted John Selby completely under his control. And he saw the girl as an impediment. And mm. and so he actually interfered with the relationship through hypnotic conditions. And And... Someone asked me in one interview, Emmy, they said, oh, you know, but I thought with hypnosis, you couldn't make somebody fall out of love with somebody if they really, if, if that's the core of their being, how do you change that with hypnosis? Well, the answer in this case was by giving him a hypnotic condition to get nauseous whenever he's around her. Do you understand? Wow. Yeah, yeah, wow. So I, oh, wow. It's a very specific physical response that's instilled into him against his will and against his knowledge but he begins to figure it out because the memories start to come back and break through the barrier well i mean did he did he actually i mean forgive me for asking this but you know in the book there's a couple a couple times where he actually gave a kiss to you know i think it was john i mean in his forehead i don't want you know yeah. to implicate oh, yeah. But, you know, did it go any further than that? Well, you know, John Selby is – there's no question that this man was attracted to him. And John Selby is, of course, considerably younger, a, a senior in college and a heterosexual. And he doesn't remember, you know, what, what all of what happened under hypnosis, what could have happened. He has some thoughts. There were some things we didn't put in the book because he wasn't absolutely sure, you know that that mm -hmm. was what, what happened and he didn't want to put any confabulation there that so we stuck to we didn't go any farther than what we really knew but you know i think you'll agree emmy it's an unusual and fascinating subject and no it absolutely is i mean and and you know i know that there's a lot of darker you know aspects about this i know that there's some things about it though, especially a lot of things we've been talking about that are really horrifying and terrifying and I'm just curious, is, is there anything that you could tell me that if somebody would ask you 
of either of your experiences at the institute that was a positive that you could take away from this? Yes, so. yes, Emmy, and I ha- I haven't gotten into that, but I do think so. Uh, and someone asked me whether I regret having been a part of uh, this, and uh, my answer was no, I don't regret it. I did have some suffering at the time, and John Selby more than I, but uh, we certainly learned how to go into states of uh, deep relaxation. Uh, the LSD experiences were long-lasting in their feeling uh, that there was a positive influence. In, uh, I feel this way on my creativity. The other thing that was pivotal for me, Emmy, um, I had been thinking uh, that I was going to be a doctor, that I was going to be a psychiatrist, go to medical school. And in fact, I was in a pre-med program at Princeton, majoring in psychology, but taking organic chemistry and you know, physics and biology, everything you need to prepare. But I was really ambivalent about that because there was something else I really had always wanted to do with my life. I loved making movies since I was a little kid with a home 8mm movie camera. And I loved science fiction. I loved all the monster movies. And I would make monster movies with my friends. And we would read famous monsters of Filmland magazine. Oh, I, I, later, I later made a whole movie about this, about the history of monster movies and special effects called The Sci-Fi Boys. It's one of my films I'm, I'm most proud of and it won a lot of awards. But 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 this started with me with a really young age. I really wanted to go into the movies, but I was growing up in Maryland. I had no relatives in the business. My parents really wanted me to go into a secure profession. My father is a college professor. My mother is a teacher. So I got no reinforcement for the idea of graduating and going out to Los Angeles and trying to make it a career in film. It seemed to everyone I grew up with that seemed crazy. And when I finally did make the decision that's what I was going to do, you know, my mother told my aunt, you know, he's throwing his life away, right? <laughs> uh, didn't work out that way. You know, I've had a very successful career. And so have my children who are in the business too, and my wife, uh, very successful in the, in the business. But everything back then was against my doing it, except these experiments just shook me up to the core, Emmy, because they just turned my whole life upside down. Well, yeah, I would think so, absolutely. And even the LSD experience made me feel, wait a minute, it's my life, you know. I'm here, I've got this one life to live that I know about. You know, maybe there's reincarnation or something or, you know, but there's this one life I know about and it's mine and I should be able to decide and if it's a risk to go out there and do what I've always wanted to do in my heart, well, it's my risk, right? It shouldn't be anybody telling me don't try to do that. Exactly. And it was that time at the Institute uh you know, the hypnosis and the a couple of the LSD experiences in particular, uh, I, 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 I think I got courage from that to just say, you know, to hell with it of this plan of going to medical school. It's not me. And it had a great positive result because I applied to study at the American Film Institute Center for Advanced Film Studies. Its very first year in Beverly Hills, they only accepted 15 students from all around the world 
full fellowship. They paid for everything. They even paid for you to make a first student film. And I was one of the 15 who was accepted for that program, Emmy. Wow. And that changed the shape of my life. So um, if I had it to do over again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change it. So I, I think I benefited maybe as much from this program as, as it harmed me in the short run. But I think I got over the things that were, uh, you know, frightening about it. Wow, that that's amazing. I mean, you know, and that's whenever I've spoken with anybody who has not necessarily been a part of this program, but who has used LSD or or from that time period, that's basically the same kind of thing that I've heard. That you know, yes, it's terrifying. Yes, it it, it affected them hor- in a horrible way in some ways, but at the same time. It really expanded their minds. It really opened them to something that they never knew. And I mean, you know, if anything, if anything, what we have learned in in the brief uh, history of all this is that the mind, the human mind, is an absolutely phenomenal thing. And it's it's something that we just don't know that still to this day we don't know that much about. And we still haven't unlocked, in my opinion, its full potential. Yeah, and you know, sure. it's just yeah, and I mean, I think you know, I know that that's part of the reason why they did these things. So the government did these things because you know, of course, they wanted it for you know military purposes and to protect the country, so to speak. But you know, it just it makes you wonder what else are we capable of? You know, and, I mean, they, they 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 were they were searching for a lot of things to try to do with these drugs that never worked out for them. Right. They, they want they hoped that through the blocking of memory. And that the drugs could help, that they might be able to set up a program for CIA agents who were retiring, who had lots of classified knowledge. There you go. And they would try to obliterate their memories of all that classified information. So wow, it could never so... even oh leak out. That really wow. was one of the goals of the program. It's right, one, of the, right. yeah. one of the reasons for exploring memory blockage using hypnosis and drugs in combination. You know, they... They did have a program to try to create the perfect hypnotically controlled assassin. Um, I think I'm not sure whether that was Project Artichoke. They had Project Artichoke, Project Delta. They had all these spin-offs of MK Ultra. However, the program we were in had nothing to do with that. They weren't looking to take college students to turn them into you know trained assassins. No, they were studying behavior with us. For that other program, they would want somebody who was really a loner, who had no family, no connections. Nobody's going to miss them when they suddenly disappear, you understand, or take a new name. Yep, yep. So these men were smart running this program, but um, for the American people, you know, beware. They, they did it once. Do you know for sure they wouldn't do it again? Well, I mean, they did it. We know for sure they did it during Desert Storm. The man, the men who stare at goats, you know, oh, or yeah. not, in a, yeah. you know, that was, something that similar. Was, that was about this too. That was MK Ultra too. Yeah. Absolutely. So I mean, you know, there's no, there's no, pre, there's a precedent, and there's no saying that they won't do it again, especially as technology evolves and as medical knowledge evolves. <laughs> Yeah, I would definitely not put it past them that they would do something like this again. So. Well, also, Emmy, you know, at that time, there was a great emphasis on getting information out of people, right? Right. Um, right. And how do you, you know, they were looking for truth serums. They wondered for a while whether LSD was the perfect truth serum. 
So if you captured a spy and you gave him LSD, could you get him to tell you everything that he knew and what his mission was? Could you uncover sleeper agents with these drugs? That was part of what their their research was about. Today, it's a lot easier for them to get information on anybody because even though they say the government has to get a court order, you know, if they want to see what's on your cell phone or listen to your your phone calls or study your emails and text messages, as we know, just look at reality. They don't. These things can be hacked. We don't know who has access to it, but we're carrying around the spy devices, the technology capable of spying on everything we do. Yep, they're called iPads, iPhones. Everywhere we go, even in the car with the navigation system. They always think and find out where you're driving. So... They, meaning uh, the powers that be, which would include the intelligence agencies, this technology has helped them come a long, long, long way in trying to fulfill a lot of what their goals were for being able to keep tabs on people. So maybe they don't need this as much anymore of what they were doing then. You know, the, the, the taking individual subjects and giving them drugs and training them in hypnosis and studying them. I think that they can get information they want about anyone at the push of a button instantly now. So the whole world, it's all changed. What hasn't changed is the intense human interest in mind exploration, mind expansion, psychedelics, LSD, and how the government tried to handle it was to outlaw it all. It's all they make it all against the law and they even for almost fifty years made it impossible for researchers, bona fide, trained, scientific people made it impossible for them even to have access to the drugs and have funded studies about them. And what I think hip- this what hypocrites. What hypocrites total hypocrites. It was it this to me was a tragedy. We just wasted 50 years, folks. You know, Nancy Reagan and just say no and, you know, send people to jail if they're caught. It's crazy, particularly in today's environment where half the states will allow people to use marijuana either strictly for pleasure or for medical purposes, and half the states won't. And it's still against federal law. You talk about a schizophrenic society. You know, United right. States of America, what does that mean? Get, <laughs> get, get rid of these laws, I say, of, or these classifications of the Drug Enforcement Agency um, that make these drugs equal to heroin. It doesn't make sense. People are using them. They will continue to use them. And yeah. it should be – there should be ways for people to use these things safe, more safely, reduce the risk. You know, have centers where there are trained people. If someone wants to have a trip, you need to have a good set and setting. Screen Somebody to people, guide you. Yeah. Screen people, you know. And you mentioned that a, a lot of people you know that maybe have done this have said, you know, maybe part of it was terrifying or shocking. But it doesn't have to be, you see. That's the mm-hmm. other thing. You know, if you have a mild dose that's not pushing you to extremes – and you're with friends and people you trust in a very comfortable environment, it can be like it was for Aldous Huxley in The Doors of Perception, which was a grand awakening of the mind. 
So, wow. so I, I, I think we're sort of getting near wrapping up, but I want to just yeah. I was just going to say you're doing it again. You're reading my mind. Stop it. Okay. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, let's urge you. No, no. You know, you can get blowing America's mind um, at uh, Amazon. I think it's 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 twenty bucks as a paperback and it's ten bucks as a Kindle download. And it just came out, and uh, it's, uh, you know, beginning to create a buzz. And I think that like a book like The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test back in the day by Tom Wolfe about the 60s, about Ken Kesey and his hippie bus and uh, the whole era, and they're arresting Ken Kesey for possession of one joint, and he had to flee to Mexico. Ken Kesey, by the way, the writer of... Um, of uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and sometimes yeah. Notion in his mid-20s was considered one of the greatest up-and-coming American novelists. And yet, because of possession of one joint, he had to leave the country and flee to Mexico. And when he came back, they nabbed him. And the trial well, I think that forever. Yeah, and that, and that, that happened to Tim Leary, though, too, oh, yeah. didn't it? Same thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and then I made... I made uh, a movie about Timothy Leary, which you can right. find online now, streaming. It's called Timothy Leary's Dead, which is from the lyrics of the Moody Blues that had a song called Legend of right. and about Timothy Leary. That and the song is Timothy Leary's Dead. And uh, so I got together with Timothy Leary in the last year of his life and filmed with him Holy his, cow, his wow. biography. And this movie created a firestorm when it came out. It was in you know, dozens of film festivals and um, it hasn't been on TV. But the, y you can stream it. Um, and that, for me, was kind of an extension of my experience at the Institute. It was kind of a way of wrapping everything up by going to the man who, more than anybody else in America, had proselytized. It said, you know, turn on. Turn on, tune in, and drop out. All right? Well, the the turn on part, you know, the Beatles said, I'd love to turn you on. The tune in part, yes, it's positive if you can tune into an expanded version of yourself and your mind. The dropout part, I think, has completely fallen away. That's not valid anymore. And what, what erased that from the equation, in my opinion, is the new technology. Because once you had computers and an Internet and a way that everybody can make their voice heard and creating websites and ease of communication with each other around the world, no more point in dropping out. You know, drop into that and use it to the very best of your abilities. Uh, but Timothy Leary's time was earlier. It was different. It was drop out because of the Vietnam War, drop out because of what the government is doing. I mean, Just, yeah, no. and and a lot of people needed to. I mean, it was crazy back then. I mean, it's crazy now, but there, there were. I mean, really, a lot of people thought the world was ending. You know, well, it was just a very big. You yeah, know. and as divided as America might be right now, then it was really divided. Oh yeah, generations and the demonstrations in those days, with the war going on that so many people disagreed with. The demonstrations were constant, and uh, you you never saw this with the Kuwait. Iraq war or the other 
Iraq. No, not to that. Not not to that level. Right. No. It was uh, it was a different feeling about our being in uh, Vietnam. So those days are reflected in blowing America's mind. So what can I say? The book is it's new. It's out there. We've worked on it for over forty years. That, we, that, that's an appropriate. Uh, out, it's definitely out there. That's a very appropriate. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I couldn't resist. It's out no, there it, in, in terms of uh, spacing out your mind, and it's out there, uh, meaning it's easily accessible. You can find yep, it. Yep, absolutely, and I, I would highly recommend it. I mean, you know, guys, you, you don't – listen, you don't have to be into this stuff to like it. I mean, it's it really – I think anybody that would be interested in knowing about how far a government can go, even a supposedly free country can go with its own citizens – then you guys need to read this book because we're living in uncertain times and and you know we need to know our past in order to basically build our future and people like you know Paul he's been there and been there and back so you know i i want to thank you so much for your time Paul i know you're a very busy man and uh i want to tell you i'm a fan of a lot of stuff you've done i mean i love the you know, especially Sci-Fi Boys, man. I I I actually really enjoyed that documentary. I mean, Peter Jackson yeah. is a huge. Oh my gosh, he was Peter Jackson helped me tremendously, and he became the host of that tour through the history of special effects and movies. Oh, it was wonderful. I mean, I'm I am just like I, I I don't know how excited I am to tell you that I'm one person away from like I'm one. How do they say one degree of separation away from Peter Jackson? <laughs> Okay. So that's pretty cool. And 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 hey, not only that, but I'm also a humongous fan, of course, of Transformers and of the things you did in Star Wars. I I just we got to get you on again just to even just to talk about that. We can do um, it. We can do it. Absolutely. Yeah, we got to do that because I mean I I mean I have a lot of friends of mine that are filmmakers, and they always ask me, Emmy, you always get these guys on here that had. You know, ties in Hollywood. They got to get on here and tell us how we can make movies. I'm like, well, just do it. You know, just do the doggone movie. And, you know, that's how they did it, you know. But we got to get you back on again, my friend. And um, so, guys, get out there and get this book, Blowing America's Mind. It's on most major bookstores and online and by Paul Davids and John Selvey. And we want to thank you again for taking the time, Paul. And you take care, my friend. We'll see, we'll, we'll see you soon. Thank you, Emmy. It's been great. Thank you. There you go, guys. What an interview, right? And I know it was a long one. So for those of you that stuck it out, thank you so much. And um, guys, I'm going to see you back in a week. And um, there might be time loop episodes uh, coming towards the end of the year. I'm going to try to see if I can do a New Year's uh, episode. Uh, usually the server doesn't permit it because they have a lot of shows that that do that sort of thing and they um you know they give precedence or however that you say that priority to those shows instead which is fine anyway if i don't if you guys you know if i don't hear from you if I, or rather if you don't listen to the show until next year i want to wish everyone a wonderful holiday season no matter what you celebrate uh and a wonderful happy new year i want to of course thank my wonderful guest paul david and uh, again, that's Blowing America's Mind, uh, a true story of Princeton, mind con CIA mind control, LSD, and Zen. You can get it at any bookstore or online at Amazon.com, or you can go to his website, BlowingAmericasMind.com, to learn a lot of stuff. they got a lot of cool videos there of all kinds of stuff that, um, that you can learn about all these things that happened with him and 
and MK Ultra. Anyway, thank you guys once again. This has been Emmy on the Graveyard Shift Talk Show. We will see you guys next week. So take care. And until then, I am punching out. Peace.